Amen. Lord, that's our heart, that, Father God, that you would be all that we're, we're living for. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Without you, our lives would be meaningless. Father, I pray as we go to the Word right now, that you would be our teacher, that you would minister to each and every heart that's here. Father, I pray we just be receptive to your Word. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. We just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 25. Acts 25. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. Again, as as I say every week, if uh, you don't have a Bible at home or you just like that one better, please feel free to take that Bible with you as our gift. Um, Lastly, before we look at the text, on the Passion movie... um, we grabbed 50, we bought a block of advance tickets for Friday night at 7.30, and we've already, we've got twice as many people signed up as we have tickets. Now that doesn't mean you can't go down to the box office and buy tickets. So if you want to go with us as a group, it's Friday night at 7.30. You might want to even go down there today or tomorrow and get the tickets, because I know they're, the showings are selling out, which praise God for that. And be praying for this movie, because I truly believe that God can use this in a mighty way to bring revival to Santa Cruz County. Amen? Start inviting your coworkers. Invite people that may not want to come to church but are willing to go to a movie. I promise when they're done watching this movie, they're going to have a lot of questions. And may we be available to, to minister truth to people. Amen? All right. Well, let's take a look at Acts 25. And I titled the message this morning. And it's interesting because I've been talking to some of you about going through trials. How many of you are going through trials of any kind right now? Raise your hand. Look how many hands are up all over this place. All right? The title of the message today is Count It All Joy. It says in James chapter 1 that we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials, for trials produce patience. And what's awesome about it is that as we go through difficulties, too often in the world we look at difficulties and trials as punishment from God somehow. Somehow I've done something wrong, and it could be that you have sinned and your sin has consequences, but often as we're walking in the center of God's will, trials will come. And we've been watching that with Paul. You know, the model for the church today is not the latest book on church growth. It's not focusing on uncovering the needs of our target market. It's not, uh, you know, being seeker-sensitive or purpose-driven. It's being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the first century church, the model was the Holy Spirit leading them. And as we've seen, the Holy Spirit would lead them into places of great blessing, but also there would be times of great difficulty and trial. But those trials in their lives were there for a reason. And we're going to see that in Paul's life, that these trials just keep coming, but every time they come, it's another opportunity for him to point people to Jesus Christ. It's another opportunity for him to trust even more in God. So if you're here today and you're going through a difficult time, know that God can use it for His glory. You can grow in your relationship with the Lord, and it can, again, can be an opportunity for you to tell others about the Lord. I often say that Christianity is more caught than taught. It's more, it's more of people watching how you respond in difficulty than you telling them how you would respond in difficulty. You can tell them all day how much you trust God, but it's even more important to show them that you trust God when things get tough. And that's exactly what Paul does in the text this morning. So just to catch you up on what's been going on with Paul so far, just remember that Paul's been going on this long legal ordeal that's been going on for years. It just won't go away in, a, in the worldly sense. Remember what had happened is God had used him to reach much of the Gentile world with the gospel. He was called by God when he was riding on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute and even kill Christians. He got knocked off his high horse. Jesus appeared to him and he said, Lord, who are you? Lord, what must I do? 
And he told them it was Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, you're persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. Well, Paul got saved and he began to witness to all the, the Gentiles. But remember, there was a burden in his heart still for his own people. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've been able to share your faith with people at work and share your faith with people around you. But you've got people in your own family that aren't saved. You know that burden that's still burning in your heart. You know, I know all these other people, but man, my, my own children or my own uncle or aunt or my grandparents or my parents or my brothers or somebody in my family doesn't know God. And there's such a burden in my heart. And that's the burden Paul had. He'd reach the Gentile nations, but he said, man, I got to go reach my own people. Well, they told him on his way, you know what, Paul, you go down there to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? What did they tell him? He was going to be what? Persecuted. Paul, you go down there, they're going to get after you, bro. They're going to try to kill you. Remember the, even the uh, prophet came and tied up his hands and feet and said, whoever this belt belongs to, the same thing's going to happen to him, and it was Paul's belt. And people could just kept telling him, Paul, don't go. And Paul said, you don't understand. I have a burden for my people, and none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Nothing's important but me reaching them for Christ. And if it means I lose my life, then so be it. Because he understood that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? The worst thing the world can do to me is the best thing that can happen to me. Somebody comes here right now and shoots me dead. I'm in the presence of the creator of the universe and praise God anyway. Amen? And too often we're so focused on the physical that we miss out on God's blessing and how he wants to use us spiritually. Paul understood. And, everywhere, and sure enough, when he got to Jerusalem, what happened? He went into the temple. He was, you know, he, you know remember this, that everywhere Paul went, one of two things happened. He either was a revival or he started a riot. That's pretty much it. There was nothing in between with Paul. Paul didn't go into a town unnoticed. When Paul showed up, man, people either were getting saved in droves or they were attacking him and wanting to kill him. Well, he gets to Jerusalem and what happens? They drag him out into the, to the court and they just start to pull him to pieces and wail on him. And he's going to die. But the Roman commander sees him. God's not done with him yet. You're indestructible till God's through with you, right? And down they come and they pull Paul out of the crowd and they save his life. And this crowd is mobbing and they're coming against and they have to take him up these steps to these barracks. And when he's up there, they want to kill him. And what does Paul do? You guys remember? He says, he speaks in Greek to the, to the Roman soldier. He hasn't said a word. They're trying to kill him. He doesn't say anything. He gets up to the top of the steps. He looks out in this huge crowd that all wants to kill him. And he says, let me talk to these guys. Now, that's the last thing I would want to do. And if I talked to them, it probably wouldn't be very kind. Right? It might be, eh, got away or something, right? But that's not what happened. Paul didn't say, you know, you got tough. You couldn't get me. You can't touch this, right? He didn't do that. What did Paul do? Paul looked at him and he started sharing his testimony with him because he loved him. Even though they persecuted him, he loved him. He saw him with the Lord's eyes and he realized these guys desperately need God. And I've got the answer. And the reason they're such a mess and the reason they're so angry is they need Jesus. And I know Jesus. And let me tell them about Jesus. Well, didn't work out too well. Because as soon as he said the word Gentiles, what did they do? They started a mob again. And they got a hold of Paul yet another time. And he continually had to be rescued and saved. Later he was brought before the Sanhedrin. He comes into the religious leaders. And he could have said, what a bummer, God. I, all I'm doing is telling people about you. And they keep hurting me and dragging me off to more and more trials. They brought him in in front of the Sanhedrin, and what did the high priest do? He commanded someone to do what? To hit him in the mouth. Paul just steps up and says, I've done nothing wrong before God or man. And the high priest says, hit him in the mouth. And it's a vicious blow. Paul just stands there, and the guy comes up and just smacks him. Paul's just preaching Jesus. Maybe some of you feel that way. You're sharing your faith at work, and 
They haven't maybe physically smacked you in the mouth, but they've not been real kind to you because you tell people that the Lord loves them. And so Paul gets hit in the mouth. He looks at the high priest and he calls him a whitewashed wall, a hypocrite. Outwardly, you look good inside. You're nothing but dead men's bones, man. You need to get saved is what he's telling them. This is the high priest. But I'm the high priest with the black robes. What do you mean I need to get saved? Let me just tell you something. Being a priest won't save you. Amen? Being a good religious man is not going to save you. Now, I'm not saying you, you know, it's Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead because whether you're the high priest or the lowest of people, you're all, we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior and we must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. He called him a whitewashed wall and he found he was a high priest. He apologized. So that didn't go too well. And again, he has to be carted off now to Felix, which we saw last week. He had to have 470 soldiers protecting him because remember, some of the Jews, 40 of them said, I'm not eating any food until I kill that guy. No food, no water until that guy's dead. That's an oath, right? I was saying, I hope you had a big breakfast because God's on his side, right? It's going to be a long time because it ain't going to happen until God says so, right? And so what happened was that he went off, and yet again, he's now standing, as we saw last week, before Felix the rat, as I called him, not Felix the cat. And we saw him last week, and what did he do? He started off by bringing him out, and in came the, these guys to bring false accusations against Paul. They brought their mouthpiece, right, their attorney, Tertullus, and he came in there and started making false accusations, and he's buttering up Felix. Oh, mighty Felix, you're such a wonderful man. You're so great and awesome. He was a dog, right? And so he's buttering him up to get the right answer, and, and then they start bringing all these false accusations against Paul, and Paul doesn't say one word, says nothing. False accusations come, and he says, that's up to God. God, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Not vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says Dave. Amen. I'm not to wreak vengeance. God, that's God's job. He says, you know what, Lord? It's in your hands. I trust you. And we know what ended up happening. Because he was silent when time was given, Felix waved at him and gave him a chance to speak. And what did Paul do? He started preaching the gospel. He started talking about the resurrection. And remember what happened to Felix. He got up and he clearly shared with Felix the truth of the gospel. He pointed him to his past sin, his current temptation, and the future judgment. And what did Felix do? Felix said, I'll what? I'll wait till later. You remember that? I'll hear this from you later. I'm not ready to give my life to the Lord right now. Last week we titled the message, No Decision is a Decision. You're either for me or against me, Jesus said. You either have a relationship with him or you're his enemy. Because he loves you and he died for you and he paid the price for you and he hung on a cross that you might have eternal life and you either accept that or you reject it and say, I'm going to live my life my own way. That's where Felix was at. So that picks us up this week. And we've been seeing it's just been one trial after another. But we're going to see that now Paul's going to stand trial yet again. Because what happened at the end of the last chapter? He was put under house arrest for two years. There were no accusations against him. He'd been convicted of nothing. And they put him in house arrest for two years. And as we talked about last week, they chained him to a soldier. And these soldiers were in eight-hour shifts, three eight-hour shifts. And they would clank these chains on him, and for eight hours, Paul had a different guy chained to him. Now, he was doing this for two years. What do you think Paul was doing with the guy he was chained to? Dude, you need Jesus. Oh, well, I got something. No, you ain't going. Where are you going? You're chained to me, right? 
Wherever you go, I'm going. And guess what? You need Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. And he didn't get all bitter and say, Lord, there's no, there's no formal accusations against me. They've pressed no charges. This is not fair. God, you forgot about me. Lord, I've been serving you. He didn't do that, did he? Instead, he said, okay, Lord, this is where you got me. Chained to a different guy every eight hours. Here's my divine appointment. I'm just going to preach to these guys until you do something different. Well, two years goes by, and we're going to come to the chapter this morning. And this is where we're going to count it all joy as Paul's trials and divine appointments continue. He's going to stand before a new governor named Festus. He's going to appeal to Caesar. And then finally, he's going to stand before a king. Again, in fulfillment of God's promise that he would preach the gospel and bear witness to both the Gentiles and to kings. So count it all joy. And remember this. Paul's calling and faithfulness to do the will of God didn't result in physical comfort or a carefree life, but it resulted in trials. And as Christians, you know what? Can I tell you something? Just share from my heart. I am so blessed and so glad that God has called me and given me the ability to do what I do. I'm so blessed. And do you know that it doesn't mean that my life's going to be without trial or difficulty? Do you know that sometimes I still have struggles in my home? We still have struggles with different things. But do you know that I'm, I'm so glad that God is with me and I'm not doing this alone? Amen? I'm glad that I'm not going through these trials. I can't imagine being in the world and going through this stuff without Jesus Christ on my side. And understanding that God is sovereign, He's faithful, He's in control, He loves me, He knows what's best for me. I put my life into His hands, there's no better place to put it. And sometimes we think, well, if I become a Christian, you know, I'm going to have to give up a bunch of stuff. No, you're going to know the Savior, you're going to gain everything. But it doesn't mean you're going to be in the cruise ship to heaven. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. But it means you're not going to be in this alone anymore. For you and I, we're not to view trials and difficulties, you know, illnesses, family struggles, uh, your desire to be married, to have children, a death in the family. Remember that God is in control of it all. Look at it through eternal eyes. Again, be like Paul. Trust in God. So let's take a look, beginning in verse 1. As Paul stands before Festus, this new governor, and again, we're going to see that something something's just never changed. Look at verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now Festus became the new governor because Felix, the rat, got thrown out. The Greeks and the Jews began to fight. He actually had some of his guys go out and wipe out a bunch of the Jews and stir up trouble. And the word got back to Nero. And Nero sent word down and pulled Felix out of his job and they sent Festus to take his place. Now, Festus was mainly ruling over Jews, and so he no doubt wanted to have a good relationship with the Jews. So it says here in verse 1 that he went after three days from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. He went down there because he wanted to speak to the Jews, to begin to build a relationship with them, to talk to them. You know, these are the guys you're going to be ruling over. Now, I want to say one last note about Felix. Remember Felix said, I'll talk to you later about this? Guess what? That time never came. Felix never got saved. And Felix is right now weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternity separated from God. God loved him enough to send Paul to look right into his eyes and tell him, Jesus loves you. He died for you. You know what? You can have hope right now. And he said, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm the governor, man. I'm happy with my life. I'm good. I don't need it. I'll talk to you later about this. One of Satan's biggest lies is, you know, he'll say there's no God, but most people won't believe that. There's a God. He'll say there's, you know... There's no need for you to 
to, to believe in the resurrection, but we won't believe that. But what he will say that a lot of people will believe is there's no hurry to make a decision about Christ. You can wait until later. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Felix waited and he missed God entirely. Now what kind of man was Festus? He was actually, compared to Felix, a pretty good guy from the world's perspective. According to Josephus, a first century historian, he said he was an honorable and capable leader who was thrown into a very difficult situation. So he goes up to Jerusalem, he wants to introduce himself to the Jews, he wants to get to know and understand the people he would be ruling over, verse 2 and 3. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Now this blows me away. Let me tell you why. It's been two years. Festus shows up, and it's honeymoon time. You know, it's like the newly elected president. He wants everybody to be happy with him. He shows up, and they can pretty much ask Festus for whatever they want. Hey, the guy's coming down here. He wants us to be on his side. We can ask him for whatever we want. And what do they ask him for? Paul. They haven't seen the guy in two years. You'd think they would have forgot about him by now. This is how angry they were that Paul was taking the Jews and pointing them to Jesus Christ. They so hated the truth. They were so against what Paul was doing that two years later, there were some real hungry guys, right? They said they weren't eating until he was dead. So either they died of starvation or they broke their oath, one or the other. And no doubt some of them were in the crowd, let's get that Paul guy, right? Isn't this the same plan? Remember before they said, on his way up, we'll jump in, we'll ambush and we'll kill him. This is the same old plan. So we're going to have the same old accusations and the same old plan against Paul. Nothing's changed. And they call it to Festus and say, hey, you know, uh, we got this Paul guy and he's, you know, he's a dissenter and he's causing static and he's going to be nothing but problems for you, Festus. He's going to raise the Jews up. They're going to come against you. You know what? You need to bring him down here so we can have a trial, right? So we can wait in the bushes and when he walks by, we can jump out and... And, and finish the job we've tried to do several times. You know what? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is in control. Men can plot all they want. We've got to remember that God is faithful. So what's foremost in their mind, even two years later, they want, they want Festus to summon him, and again. And I've no doubt some of those same 40 men wanted to wait. You know, the Bible, Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Who's behind this plot against Paul? Not a doubt in my mind, it's Satan. Okay? And so they're waiting, they want to destroy him, but God is faithful. Remember this too. Who is Satan going to attack the most? Understand, Satan is not the opposite of God. Amen? Satan in no way, shape, or form comes close to God. Satan was a created angel that fell out of heaven, and Satan is a defeated foe, and he's toast, and his future is not good. Amen? Now, sometimes we give Satan too much credit, but you need to understand that, that he is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And who's he going to go after? His resources are limited. He's going to go after those who are being used most by God. So when you go through difficulty and the enemy's after you, that just means God's using you, so praise God. Amen? You need to look at it that way. Verse 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea. Now, praise God. Festus is a new guy. It would have been real easy for him to give the people what they wanted, but instead... Again, because God's in control, Festus said, I don't think that's a good idea. Should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, 
Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. So he turns, not, probably maybe not even realizing that Felix had done this once before, and says, if you guys have a problem with Paul, you guys come on up, 60-something miles away, a couple days of walking, come on up to Caesarea, and we'll put him on trial, and you can tell me the accusations. Because for the Romans, they took this seriously. Nobody could be accused unless they were standing there. Someone wanted to accuse you, you had to do it right in front of the person. And he said, you want to come up to Caesarea and accuse him to his face? You guys come on up. And so that's exactly what the Jews would do. They once again would come on up. Verse 6. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now those of you who are going to Israel with us next month, we're going to sit in this very spot. It's pretty awesome. The very spot where the judgment seat was, there's an amphitheater that is there that will literally seat thousands, okay? And it's been uncovered, it's in pristine shape, and you know exactly where the judge would be sitting and exactly where Paul would be brought, and then this crowd's there bringing accusations against him. So those of you there going to be there next month will see this exactly, I'm going to stand in the spot where Paul stood, and I'm going to teach you this chapter again in chapter 26, pretty awesome, Okay? The place is really there. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a made-up story. This happened, okay? And it happens in our lives today, the false accusations that were, were being brought against us. Again, you think at this point Paul would be bitter. They're dragging me out for the same stuff again? How many of you ever felt that way? How many times i got to answer this, right? How many times? I've been accused of this 50 times. I keep answering. They keep accusing me. I've done nothing wrong. But Paul doesn't respond that way. Paul, again, feels like everything, viewing it from uh, an eternal perspective, is another opportunity. He's been chained to guards for two years. Now they say, hey, Paul, come on out. we got a bunch of people that want to accuse you. All right. New audience. I've had these same three guys. I've discipled them pretty good over the last two years, right? I've been talking Jesus to them. Oh, you're going to bring me out in front of some more folks? That's great. Let's go, right? That's Paul's heart. And it ought to be our heart when we go through difficult times. Verse 7. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Again, what are they doing? They're lying about Paul. They're making stuff up. Paul did this, and Paul did this. And and again, do we see Paul getting angry? Do we see Paul, you know, lashing out in vengeance? He will defend himself in a moment, but only when he's given the opportunity. Instead, he keeps quiet and says, this is in God's hands, not mine. Lord, I trust you. Lord, you're faithful. Lord, you brought me here. Not only that, the Lord had promised he was going to take him to Rome, didn't he? Remember, he said, you're going to minister to the Jews, and when you're done, you're going to Rome. So he knew that they couldn't do anything to him because God told him he was going to Rome. So he trusted God's promises, and he went out with the right heart. Look at verse 8. While he answered for himself, this is Paul speaking, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. He simply and calmly responds and says, I've done nothing contrary to what the the, the Jews teach. I've done nothing contrary to the Roman law, and in no way have I defiled the temple. I've done nothing wrong. He doesn't, again, get angry. He doesn't try to fight fire with fire. He doesn't respond that way. He just gets up and shares the truth. I've done nothing wrong. I stand before God clean. And ultimately, that's the most important thing. Verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, 
answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Festus, again, remember, he's this new governor. He's a politician. He doesn't want the Jews to be upset. So he says, Hey, will you guys do me a... You know, Paul, if this is really the way you feel, why don't you come on up to Jerusalem and let's try you back there. Now, again, Festus responds like a politician, more concerned with what men thought than really uncovering truth, and says... You want to go back and meet with the Sanhedrin, the same group had falsely accused him before. But we're going to see Paul's response. And understand, I believe this is a godly response in obedience to what God had already told him. God had told him, you're going to Rome. I'm taking you there because you've got divine appointments waiting for you. There's people you're going to share your faith with. I'm not done with you, Paul. Be ready. So what does Paul do? Look at verse 10 through 12 as he appeals to Caesar. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat when I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Again, Paul says, look, you know I've done nothing wrong. Nobody's proved anything. I've been here for a couple years, but God's plan is that I would go to Rome. Verse 11, for if I'm an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, there was a, a law or a rule that any Roman who thought he was being treated unfairly could appeal to appear before Caesar. To say, bring me before Caesar because there I'm going to get a fair trial. But that's not really, I believe, Paul's heart. Paul's heart is God told him, you're going to Rome. He had been before the Sanhedrin before. He knew that they were not heeding his word. You know, it says in the Bible that if you share your faith and, and somebody won't receive it to do what? Wipe the what? The dust off of your feet. And head in another direction. Not that he was giving up on the Sanhedrin, but he didn't want to spend all his time ministering to 70 guys that didn't want to hear it when he knew that there were people in Rome that God was calling him to who were going to be saved in masses. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do what God's called me to do. By appealing to Caesar, it's going to get me to where God wants me to be. So I'm going to obey the Lord. Again, rather than return to Jerusalem. Now, Paul was ready to give his life for the Lord. He even says here, if I've done anything wrong, I don't object to dying. Paul wasn't afraid to die. Paul knew where he was headed. You know what? It's interesting. The two things that people are most afraid of in this world are public speaking and dying. Right? So I guess it would be really bad if you're like dying when you publicly, you know, you're speaking publicly and you die. That would be really bad. You don't want to die when you're up here speaking, right? But here's the reality. That's the things that people fear the most. Do you know what's awesome? The Bible says there is no, no fear for those in Christ Jesus. Amen? We have nothing to be afraid of. He that knows me best, loves me most. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be dead. Hey, by the way, you're all going to be dead a lot longer in your life. Did you know that? Amen? The Bible says your life is but a vapor. It's like that. You know, since I started having children, man, my life is going by so quick. It's amazing. My daughter, she was crawling like last week, and now she's driving a car. <laughs> it's killing me, you know? That's the one area where my kids won't obey. I tell them, you're not allowed to grow up, and they just won't, they won't respond in obedience to Dad. But our lives just go by so quick. And I'll tell you, if you're walking around in fear of death and in fear of getting old and a fear, you know, you're going to just be miserable. But if you have a relationship with Christ, there's nothing to fear. You know, every time I have a birthday, I'm one year closer to Jesus. Amen? I'm one year closer to heaven. It's all good. Paul understood. Paul wasn't afraid to die. Paul didn't appeal to Caesar because he was afraid they were going to hurt him. 
Paul said, I'm going there because God has an appointment for me there, and there's people that need to hear about him, and I'm going to obey God's command and God's calling for my life. So he said, Caesarea, Caesarium, Apelestai, again, to appeal. Acts 23, verse 11 says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must go to the Romans. May we learn, again, to put God's will ahead of our own desires. To be more concerned with what, how is this going to impact the kingdom of God? Hey, next time you make a major decision, instead of thinking how much more comfortable it's going to make you, think about how it's going to impact the kingdom of God in your walk with Him. Too often we're, you know, when you're sitting in the new car, right, smelling that leather, right, got the new car smell, you're not thinking, how is this going to impact the kingdom of God, right? It's, this is a pretty sweet ride right here. I'll be comfortable in this, right? Yeah, the payments are a lot. I can get a second job. I won't be able to go to church on Sunday, but I'll get another job. I'll be looking sweet on my way to both of my jobs now, right? And what happens is we get that physical perspective, and we don't think about how things impact the kingdom of God. We think about how it impacts us. Paul said, hey, how is this going to impact the kingdom of God? I'm going there because there's people there that are waiting to hear from me, and that's what it's all about, and that's why I'm living. And if God wants to take my life, it's okay. Remember this, that without a trial, these opportunities would not have existed. Without trials, there's, no, there's so many people we can't minister to. What was the name of the guy that died on uh, 9-11? What's his last name? Beamer? Isn't that his name? And his wife's a Christian, right? And she's written books and she's appeared on... Now, again, I'm not saying it was, from the world's perspective, a good thing that her husband died. But you know what? It was God's plan and God has used her to speak to millions about Jesus because her husband died and went to be with the Lord. And she's got a spiritual perspective. And she could say, it's just not fair. I'm raising my kids alone. And now that's difficult. But God is with her. And God has used that trial for her to be able to minister to millions. And that's how Paul said, you know what? These trials are tough, but it's an opportunity for the gospel. Bring it on. It's going to give me a chance to minister to people that never would have listened to me before. So verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, said, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now he's going to appear before a king. Before he appears to Caesar, there's going to be a king. That, now, how often do you think Paul would be able to sit in front of a king? Not very often, but because of this trial, he now gets to sit in front of a king and preach Jesus to him. He's saying, praise the Lord. Okay, put me in jail. I got prison, I got, you know, I got uh, soldiers and jailers to talk to. All right, now you want to drag me out? I get to talk to the governor. Oh, I'm appealing to Caesar. Now I get to talk to a king, and then I'm going to get, praise the Lord. Hey, if they had to throw me in jail so I could go talk to the president about Jesus Christ, throw me in jail. Amen? What an opportunity. Paul understood it. He had a spiritual perspective. Verse 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, King Agrippa, guess what his first name was? Herod. Remember we talked about the miniseries? The Herods, right? These guys were bad news. All, if your name's Herod in the Bible, it's like Judas. Not good. Don't name your kids Herod and don't name them Judas, okay? Don't do that. Because these Herod guys, all of them were bad news. They all hated God. And this king shows up, and he's really Herod Agrippa II. And he shows up, and this guy, his background was that he's the son of Herod Agrippa. Remember, Herod Agrippa was the one that started speaking like a god, and God ate him up with worms. Remember that? He got eaten up from worms from the inside out. His uh, uncle was the one who killed, had John the Baptist beheaded. His father killed James and imprisoned Peter. His grandfather was the one that killed all the babies in trying to kill Jesus because he heard the Messiah had been born, so he killed all the babies in, Jeru- in, in uh, Bethlehem. 
trying to find the one that would be Jesus. Kill them all so I'd make sure that Messiah doesn't grow up and take my position. That was the Herods. They were a, a, a wicked and an evil family. He's also the sister of Drusilla. Remember her from last week? Drusilla, she died with a volcano erupted on her. Uh, hello, right? Don't think God has some judgment up in here, right? She, she got a volcano blew up on her. God brought, came to her and said, I love you, I died for you, I want to have a relationship with you. He's like, I ain't interested. Two years later, she's shopping. It's a fact. She's shopping and a volcano erupted and she died. God loved her enough to reach out to her, but judgment will come at some point. Amen? Those who say no long enough are going to face judgment. Now, who's with this, this Herod Agrippa? Bernice. Now, this is a messed up family because Bernice is his sister, but he's married to her. That's not good. Now, Bernice, Bernice has been married twice before to two other kings. She's just trying to climb the ladder. She thinks Herod Agrippa's moving in the right direction, so she dumped one king husband to be with her brother. What a mess of a family. So Agrippa and Herod are living in sin, and history tells us again that she's been married before, and this guy, Herod Agrippa, his, his power had been diminished, and, and he was losing his authority because all his all the Herods were dying and he had lost authority. And now he's coming to this new governor because he wants to, to you know, find good favor with Festus. So King Agrippa shows up and he's got his sister wife with him. And they're going to examine Paul. Now is this comedy or what? Can you imagine? Here's Paul, the apostle, again a sinner but saved by grace. And they think they're going to examine Paul. Who's on trial here? Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus, and everybody else who's listening. They think, we're going to examine Paul. The guy's with his sister. The guy's a train wreck. His life's a total mess. And he thinks he's going to examine Paul. I'm going to examine this Paul guy. We'll find out where he's at, right? Paul's like, okay, here's an opportunity for the gospel. Now, what I love about this story is Agrippa and Bernice are a mess, but God still loves them enough to share the gospel with them through Paul. Isn't that good? Can Agrippa get saved? Absolutely. What about Bernice? Abs- can they, they can get saved, right? And God loves them enough he didn't say, you guys are such a mess, forget. He said, I love you, and I died for you. And he brought Paul into this trial that he might minister to them and speak the truth to them. It's the two of them that were truly on trial. Verse 14. When there have been many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. So Festus lays Paul's case before Agrippa because he's got to send Paul to Caesar and he doesn't even have anything to write down as the reason he's coming. I've got to send Paul up there and I ain't even got no charges to write against this guy. I'm going to look like an idiot. But he said he wanted to go. I've got to send him. Maybe you guys can listen to what he says. We've got to find out something to write on the paper to send up to him. He's been sitting in prison for two years. The guy's done nothing wrong that I can see. But maybe let's examine him. Maybe you can help me find a charge. Verse 16. Verse 15 about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for judgment against him. Again, the elders and the chief priests wanted to bring judgment against Paul quickly before anybody found out he was innocent. Verse 16. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself against the charges concerning him. So again, Festus wanted goodwill from the Jews, but it was Roman law that they had to face their accuser face to face. Every side must be heard. And so, praise God that Festus was faithful to that. Verse 17. 
Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat at the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. So Festus moved quickly. He brought the guys up. He said, I sat at the judgment seat, and they brought accusations against Paul. Verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against such things which I supposed, but had some questions about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. There it is. What is that? That's the gospel. These guys, he said, you know what? We found no accusations against them. The only thing we can say about them is that they've got problems with them about their own religion because they talked about this Jesus who they say is dead, but Paul says is alive. You know, the only thing we can find against this guy is he just talks about Jesus all the time. And he's in love with him, and he keeps talking about him being resurrected from the dead. We have no other accusation. We can say nothing else against him, but boy, does he talk about Jesus a lot. And boy, does he keep talking about the resurrection. And boy, they were stirred up, because remember the sad you sees, right? We're sad, you see, right? Why were they sad? They didn't believe in the resurrection. How'd you like to be a priest who didn't believe in the resurrection? What is the point? I don't get it. Why would you have church if this was it? Amen? Why would you bother if nobody's raising from the dead? I don't understand that. And Paul's preaching the resurrection, and they don't like it, and they're getting uptight. And so we see here that he's guilty of one thing, preaching the gospel. You know, if people are accusing you at work, what is the accusation? If the accusation is, man, that guy just loves the Lord and talks about God all the time, then praise God. If the accusation is that you're a jerk, that's not good, right? Now, we're supposed to share our faith, but never be self-righteous. And always do it in love. Amen? You standing on a box screaming with a megaphone that people are going to fry in hell is not real effective. You're going to fry! That's not good. The Bible says it's kindness that leads people to repentance. Amen? They should know us by the love that we have one for another. Not self-righteous, I'm going to heaven and you're not. That's not good. It's God loves you so very much that he died that you might have eternal life. His desire that none should perish, no, not one. And you know what? I'm a sinner just like you. And the only reason I'm going to heaven is because of God's grace and the work that he did, and I simply received it, and so can you. That's a little different message than standing on a box and screaming at people, isn't it? And Paul was known for one thing, the gospel. You thought of Paul, you thought about Jesus. When people think about you at work, what do they think about? When your neighbors think about you, what do they think about? The car you drive, how eloquent you are, the hobbies that you have, or do they know that you're born again and you've given your life to Jesus Christ? If the people at work are, would be surprised to find out you're a Christian, that's not a good thing. Amen? I told you the story. I had a co-worker one time, and he, he was over talking to the artists at work, and they found out he was a Christian, about six people, and two people said, you? And two of them were literally laying on the ground, laughing so hard, they were holding their stomachs. You're not, a, oh, please. And they're laughing. I, man, I've been drinking with you, and I've seen you, and I, there's no way. And, and that's, oh, I'm like, oh, that's not good. That's a bad testimony. Amen? You know what? Not that we're perfect as Christians, but may we point people to Christ. Amen? And Paul understood that. Paul said, look, I'm going to be known for one thing. Jesus Christ, I'm crucified and risen from the dead. When they think of my name, I want them to think about Jesus. And so they said, we have no accusation against this guy. The only thing we can say about him is, he keeps talking about this Jesus. And he keeps saying he's risen from the dead, and we can't shut him up. He won't stop. Remember, they took him outside the city in Lystra and threw rocks at him until he was dead. Remember that? And he died, I believe. The Bible is very clear. He got up from the dead, and what did he do? He went right back into the city and started preaching again. How do you stop a guy like that? 
You don't. Right? They throw rocks at you till you're dead and you get back up and keep the same message going. Praise God for Paul. Right? And so this is where they're at and they try to bring these accusations. Verse 20. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged according to these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commended him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. So Paul appealed to Caesar. Festus said, hey, that's the Roman law. I'm going to send him there. He didn't understand there was a divine appointment waiting for Paul. He just knew Paul's request. Verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So Agrippa steps up and says, man, I want to talk to this guy. Now, is that a divine appointment or what? Absolutely. Is there any other way Paul would have been sitting in front of a king preaching Jesus to him if he weren't on trial? There's no other way. And we're going to see next week how Paul clearly gives Agrippa the testimony. His testimony. It's awesome. Look at verse 22. Then uh, verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders, the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Now this cracks me up. Agrippa, how does he come in with great, what does it say? Pomp. He came in, you know, people waving flags and, you know, he's got the, probably the headdress on. I don't know what he's doing, right? And he's walking in, and ooh, here's the king, right? You know what he is? He's a sinner in need of a savior. Amen? And nothing less than that. And he comes marching in, and he's really full of himself. And, you know, he kind of like, look at the car I'm driving, look at the house I'm living in. You guys are lucky to be talking to me, Right? kind of just filled with pride and pomp. He's with his sister. And he's marching in, and he's feeling really great about himself, and Paul's going to have a talking with this man. And he's going to let him know that there's no peace in the way you live your life now. I don't care how, how many people you got waving banners in front of you. I don't care how rich your clothes are. You, like all of us, need Jesus. Again, they came arrogantly to put Paul on trial, but it's really them that are going to be put on trial. Again, they're not to touch the glory. These guys were filled with themselves. You know what? I have to confess. The thing I hate most in other people is pride. And it's probably one of the things I struggle with most in my own life. Amen? When you see people being arrogant, don't you hate it? Do get over yourself, right? You ever see that? Dude, would you just get over yourself? You ain't all that, right? You know what I mean? But yet, we struggle with it too, don't we? Who do you think you are treating me that way, right? Oh, that'd be pride, right? We hate it in others, but we struggle with it ourselves. And here, he, here, they, here they come, filled with pride and with pomp, and come marching in with their flowing robes, and man, we're just special people, into this amphitheater filled with people. Last few verses. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out, he was one not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and he himself had appealed to Augustus. I decided to send, to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that you, after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. He says, guys, he's appealed to Caesar. I've got to send him up there. I need something to write. You guys examine him with me, and you tell me something that we can say bad about him. We've got to have some accusations. We've got to have a crime to write. How are we going to send him to the judge? What are you accused of? Nothing. Imagine they brought you in before. Imagine the DA brings you in. The cops bring you in. They got you cuffed. They drag you in. They put you in front of the judge and say, and this is the high court, right? Bring you to the Supreme Court. They got your face pinned on the table. What's he accused of? Nothing. What has he done? Nothing as far as we know. 
That's where they're at. They're like, what are we going to do with this guy? We got nothing to write down. We got to find something. Let's examine him. Again, divine appointment that he might share with them. We're going to see most of that next week. Verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify any charges against him. Well, yeah, I guess so. How am I going to send this guy up there? I got nothing to say. Now, you're going to have to come back next week to get the rest of the story. All right? But we're going to see this divine appointment is going to be yet another opportunity for Paul to get up and just preach Jesus to the king. That his trial is an opportunity for him to share with people that he would no way otherwise be able to. So in closing, here's my encouragement to us. May we count it all joy when we fall into various trials. May we learn from Paul's example that trials in the life of a Christian are not acts of divine punishment, but are an opportunity for us to grow as individuals and for us to point others to Jesus Christ. Remember that Christianity is more caught than taught. Live it out and let people see it. For us to be a testimony of God's grace. For us to to point people to Him for those divine appointments. Again, James 1 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. May the fiery trials we go through refine us, not get us hot. Amen? When we go through a fiery trial, may we not get heated up and angry, but may they refine us and make us more like Jesus. Remember that the stuff you're going through, you're going through for a reason. Remember that without a test, you can have no testimony. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your grace, and we thank you for your word and the example of Paul. And I pray you would help us in the midst of difficulty, to have spiritual eyes, to look at the world through spiritual, from a spiritual perspective, to realize, Lord, that as we go through these difficulties, that it's all a part of your ultimate plan. Lord, if we will simply let you, you will use it for your glory. Lord, I pray for anybody here who maybe their finances are a mess. Lord, I pray you would use that for your glory. Maybe there's those here de- dealing with a heavy illness. I pray, Lord, you would use that for your glory. I pray for those who may be catching heat at work, potential layoffs, or people persecuting them for their faith. I pray you would use that for your glory. I pray for those who maybe have neighbors or coworkers who are difficult to be around. Lord, I pray you would use that for your glory. And Lord, also for our own growth spiritually, as we get our eyes off of our own comfort and our eyes on those who so desperately need you and our own growth spiritually. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your love and your grace. Go before us in the power of your Holy Spirit, for without you we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the